This is Noah Kadner, and you're listening to the Virtual Production Podcast. Wes Ball is a film director, visual effects artist, and graphic artist. He's best known for directing the Maze Runner trilogy. Though he embraced virtual production as his career accelerated, Ball first got into show business through his love of behind-the-scenes videos. I grew up in an extremely small town. No stoplights, probably a couple hundred people. I lived off VHS tapes because the closest theater to me was like an hour away. I would tape off of uh, HBO, you know? <laughs> so I grew up basically watching the same old movies over and over again. And there was some uh, behind-the-scenes show on Discovery Channel called Movie Magic. They describe special effects and all these kind of cool behind-the-scenes look at movie making. And in one of the episodes, they described uh, film students at the Florida State Film School. And so it was probably around sixth grade for me that I decided I'm, that's where I'm going to go. Ball ultimately applied to film school, but discovered it wasn't quite as easy as it looked on TV. I actually didn't get in my first year, but I went to FSU anyway. And then I started volunteering on film sets and just got to know kind of the faculty and all the students. And then I reapplied, and lo and behold, I got in that year. A lot of my friends that I made in, in film school, I continue to have today, and, you know, great relationships, including T.S. Nolan, Barry Jenkins, James Laxton, who shoots all of Barry's movies. So we shot on film, which was fantastic. I think we were the last class that did that. And it wasn't until my thesis film that I said I was going to do a little foray into animation. And I made this little short film called A Work in Progress, which is this sort of hybrid live action, very Disney, very sweet and sentimental that student film ended up winning a Student Academy Award that year. And that's right when I was moving out to L.A. And that's what kind of opened up a lot of doors for me. Ball quickly learned it was much more challenging to get a job as a director in Hollywood than to get work in effects and animation. One of my very first jobs was connected to a company called Herzog Entertainment. And they did all the behind-the-scenes features on DVDs. They were going to make this Magnificent Desolation documentary with Tom Hanks for IMAX, which was about going to the moon. Given the chance, would you take a journey to the moon? So I brought in my friend Justin Barber, who I went to school with, and he and I basically pre the entire movie ourselves. And a lot of our shots are in that documentary. And again, another lucky break. I'm like 22 years old and I'm pre you know, this cool little uh, basically all visual effects documentary about landing on the moon. Ball's success with Magnificent Desolation led to more years of steady animation work, but he still hadn't achieved his dream of becoming a director. So I started really quickly working freelance on visual effects, animation, graphics, stuff like that. And so that's how I paid the bills while I kind of climbed this ladder, the impossible ladder of trying to become a director. I got the taste of development hell, you know, it was probably about 10 years, probably close to the day, that I decided I just need to go make something for myself again. And that's where I made this short called Ruin. Ball released Ruin on YouTube and became one of the then-growing site's first major viral success stories. I was thinking it was going to become kind of like a calling card short to, um, you know, to go work at ILM or Weta or something as a visual effects artist. And when that short kind of came out, it sort of went viral. And, and a lot of those same doors opened up again from, you know, years earlier. And uh, this time, while we're talking about that project, one of the studios that was really interested in, in the short and I guess me 
was Fox. And Fox kind of, you know, while we were talking about Ruin and you know, possibly expanding into a larger feature, someone pulled me aside and gave me this book called Maze Runner. Come on, guys, can't we send someone after them? That's against the rules. Either they make it back or they don't. Making the jump from VFX artist to directing a major studio picture was relatively smooth for Ball after having spent so many years working behind the scenes. It's another one of those things where it's a naivete is sort of blessing. When they kind of brought me the major Runner script, I actually told them, hey guys, I want to start over on your script. I want you to throw it out and start over. You're not supposed to say those things, you know. But along those lines, because Ruin, a lot of his assets was concrete and ivy and overgrowth, it kind of worked perfectly for the maze kind of aesthetic. So one of the first things I did was start making artwork for it and just showing off what I would do with the walls, how the glade would look. I have a previs, I think, of the opening elevator sequence to the movie that is almost shot for shot what's in the movie. At the time, a director using virtual production tools such as Previs on their own to demonstrate their vision for a movie was almost unheard of, which prompted Fox Studios to support Ball's efforts in a major way. Yeah, I'm just incredibly lucky because Emma Watts, the studio head there, and uh, an executive at the time was uh, Peter Kang, were the guys that just kind of believed in me, basically, and supported me and sort of guided me along in that process. It just, I had a lot more people and, you know, about 34 million more dollars. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was a very smooth transition, honestly. And everyone kind of believed in sort of, I hate to use the word, but the vision that I had for this book series. It was in the heyday of the, the Hunger Games and the Twilights and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't approaching it like a YA movie. I was kind of approaching it more from the place of like, you know, my love of Indiana Jones and, you know, these kind of, you know, great adventure movies. Ball's approach suited the material perfectly, and The Maze Runner went on to be a massive success at the box office. And that was a big surprise, right? You know, the studio kind of gave this kid who hadn't really done anything before this chance, the keys to this little franchise they had. And lo and behold, you know, it makes like 360 million bucks at the box office, it like 10 times its money. That little Maze Runner movie was their most profitable movie of the year. And so even before we finished editing, I was not planning on doing the next two. But the experience was really great, and especially with the cast. I fell in love with that cast and the crew. I had the president of the studio, Emma Watts, come to me and says, you have to do the next movie. You know, otherwise we're gonna get someone else to do it, and they're not gonna do it the way you would, and the cast is gonna be sad and all this stuff. And I said, okay, I'm doing it. Ball then went on to direct two Maze Runner sequels and deliver a trilogy of successful films for Fox. And that second movie was probably three or four times bigger than that first movie. They're hiding something, okay? These people are not who they say they are. No, Thomas, you don't know that. And so it was just another case of like, okay, now we're going bigger. And it was a great experience. We had a lot of fun. I got to really kind of push the kind of set piece instincts that I have. We got the three movies down in about four years. And, you know, it went off to make just shy of a billion dollars. You know, I feel very, very fortunate, very lucky to have had the opportunity, basically, my first three movies to be a trilogy, essentially, and kind of, you know, I, I like to call it good practice. <laughs> Despite Ball's interest in previs and his later forays into real-time animation, he doesn't really consider his work during the Maze Runner series to be full-on virtual production. Now, a lot of the things that I was doing was kind of the precursor towards virtual production, right? 
I don't like the process of previs typically because a lot of times what will happen is the previs will come in really late in pre-production when you're out as a director scouting locations, casting, having production meetings all day long about how you're going to pull off a certain shot or a certain stunt sequence or whatever it is. You relinquish a lot of the kind of creative process, I guess, when you're doing previs. And I just don't like that because I think for me personally, I think where the camera goes, how you choose to shoot it, that lensing of a movie to me is the fingerprint of a director. And so I don't like to relinquish that stuff. So there's usually not a lot of previs in the movies that we make unless it's something about really specific challenges. Like we need to know how big the set needs to be, or we need to know what kind of stunt we want to pull off. And, and just we figure out the problem solve that magic trick essentially, right? Of where can we hide the strings? After completing the Maze Runner trilogy, Ball developed Mouse Guard, an ambitious all-CG movie which he prevised using Unreal Engine and performance capture. Mouse Guard was deep in pre-production at Fox Studios when Disney acquired Fox, which ultimately led to the project's cancellation. It's such an incredible world. It's exactly what I want to see in theaters right now. <laughs> so it is a shame that it got canceled. But the experience that we went through on making that thing was, it was so satisfying. Matt Reeves started kind of just talking to me about this Mouse Guards property they had. And it was a very classic kind of adventure story, but we were going to do it in the most cutting edge way possible. And now, you know, Matt had just finished up the trilogy of the Apes movies. And so he was very in tune with that whole space of motion capture. And I just felt like, yes, this is what we want to do next. A complete 100% art-directed movie. We have to design every blade of grass, every little aspect of this world, and that was just so appealing to me, especially with uh, all of the incredible artwork that's in those books. And so we went to task basically to start figuring out how we're going to pull off the movie, right? Because we didn't want to spend what other movies had cost in this world, like an Avatar, like a Jungle Book, you know, these kinds of basically fully virtual movies. We were trying to look for those efficiencies so that we weren't going to get lost in just the kind of minutiae of it all. And that's what really brought us to the kind of Unreal Engine and all the virtual production tools that were starting to really find their place in the business. And uh, yeah, and we just built our own kind of pipeline while we were art directing the entire movie. You know, we designed every set, all the characters. Ball planned to motion capture the actors' movements and transfer them to CG animation using cutting edge virtual production techniques. So the fortunate thing was that we had mice that basically were anthropomorphic. We could let actors come into a stage and just act out like a play. You know, like you would do on, on the volume in typical fashion, right? I had seen previous versions of motion capture stuff where what you're looking through, you're seeing like giant stuff or you're seeing like uh, motion builders, kind of like very crude stuff. And it was uh, Glenn Derry who was playing with this stuff that told me I needed to look at Unreal Engine. And what's so fantastic about it is that it looks really good. I mean, you can get almost final image out of that engine. And we will in a, in a year or two, I'm sure we will be at a place where in real time, we're seeing basically final image. It's going to change, I think, animation, especially in TV, the TV space forever. And so with that tool, I was able to see, holy crap, you could make this look better than my short ruin that I spent, you know, hours and hours and hours, you know, rendering a single shot. And I'm looking at this stuff in real time. It's fantastic. So I'm holding, you know, a live camera through the viewfinder. I'm seeing my unreal world that I built. 
Just like I would do in live action, I'd block the scene with the actors, make them feel comfortable, that feels natural and organic to them, and then I would come back a day or two later, look at it through my viewfinder, and just find my shots, and just shoot the sequence. And that just became such an incredible process that I think we were able to, while we we're on Mouse Guard, kind of break the old system a little bit of virtual production and kind of come up with our own version. Although Mouse Guard ultimately never made it to production, Ball created a short version of the film himself using Unreal Engine. And then a lot of people saw that online when I kind of put it out there. I think you could probably still find it if anyone cares. Just type in West Ball Mouse Guard demo. I think you'll find it somewhere out there. <laughs> but we basically used the Unreal Engine, which was going to be our previous tool, to make this really immersive, really kind of incredible showcase of the opportunities visually of this world and what it could feel like, how it could be just this incredibly cool, but also familiar fantasy adventure. It was so much fun building all that stuff, coming up with new ways to use these tools. You know, having I've made friends now with the guys at Epic who make Unreal Engine, helping to kind of just push the boundaries and the interface of the tools to the artists. And uh, I just love the process of it. It was an incredible glimpse into the future of, I think, virtual production. Ball was fortunate enough to pivot from the cancellation of Mouse Guard into an offer to direct the next installment of the venerable Planet of the Apes series through producer Matt Reeves. Apes together, strong! I had to think about it for a bit, frankly, because the last trilogy was fantastic. And I very much did not want to make a part four. You know, I wasn't interested in that. It took me a couple of weeks really to think about, was it something that I wanted to try? I suddenly got a kind of vision for what it could be. And I'm not gonna give anything away here, but it's something that is so cool. It is still tied to that Caesar trilogy, but the take allows us to set a completely new trajectory now for many more movies that still feel like a Planet of the Apes movie. So here we are now, the pandemic kind of slowed us down a bit, but we're in a good place with the script and we want to make sure that we do it justice, you know, but we're playing around unreal as we speak. At least I am anyway, I'm, I'm kind of downloading a lot of stuff and messing around and just kind of you know, getting my head into the game of, of, of what this thing could be. The fur being a really tricky thing to do in unreal. And they've started to kind of really tackle that thing along with the just incredible lighting engine that they're starting to work on with unreal five. Ball views Unreal Engine as a significant leap forward, not just for visualizing movies, but changing how they're actually made. The animation is going to completely change based on the fact that these tools exist now. Because, I mean, you've seen some of the shorts, I'm sure, some guys are doing with the Unreal Engine. They look certainly better than TV animation now, and they're doing it in real time, so there's no render cost, right? Once you have it built, especially for a TV model, where you need to be able to stretch the use case of these different sets that you kind of spend time and resources on. You have a set and you can reuse that set over and over and over again. And it basically, it's free. It doesn't cost anything. Even the rendering, it doesn't really cost a lot anymore. So it just opens up a whole opportunity of creativity, I think, that people are absolutely aware of now because we're seeing so much great stuff come out. As someone accustomed to working on his own for long periods, Ball found time during the pandemic to reflect on the future of filmmaking and how it might evolve in the aftermath of the health crisis. 
I do love the idea of being at home in my own comfort. I can choose when I want to work, all that kind of stuff. There's value to that for sure, right? But there's something about the connection and being there in a space with each other that there is still value in that. I think modeling, rigging, a lot of the technical crafts that can certainly be done remotely like that. But when you're getting into the core of the creative kind of you know execution, camera, lighting, you know, those kinds of things, I can see there being a lot of value with being there in person sometimes too. This whole uh, pandemic has certainly opened up everyone's eyes to what is possible remotely and just the amount of cost that we could possibly save with giant overhead of studio space, you know, it's, a, it's pretty significant. So I think that's a way in for, say, smaller projects to be able to do really fantastic work and not need the overhead of a physical space. For Planet Apes or something, we'll still have a small stage, small studio. We need to be able to work quickly and so much can be said just with a look, you know, than having to type it up in, in Slack or an email or something. There's just a certain amount of efficiency that I don't think uh, you can quite achieve completely remotely yet. Ball also sees LED walls and in-camera visual effects as playing a pivotal role in filmmaking from now on. I've gone to the Mandalorian set. You know, I've been there and seen it and got a cool tour of it all. And I, and I think it's funny because it's it's basically an old school trick. I mean, go watch Aliens and what James Cameron was doing with the rear screen projection stuff. It's that. It just happens to be an LED wall instead of a, of a projection screen. And uh, action! So it's an old school tech with new school tools. And it's cool. It's fantastic. Maybe I'll use it for Planet of the Apes. I'm not, not quite sure yet. I'm, I'm still kind of in love with the idea of going out on location and making sure we're capturing real stuff. One of the problems with virtual production in terms of like a mocap scenario, you're on this kind of sterile grid environment. Everything's gray. There's grid marks everywhere. It's all scaffolding and IR cameras. For an actor who's used to being in a space and letting the environment kind of inspire them, it can be hard for some actors to kind of immerse themselves into their work. And I kind of love the idea of putting up some of those LED walls just to project for them the space that they're in. It's not going to be used in the final image necessarily, but it's there to kind of give them something to kind of hold on to. If we're already using that wall to maybe possibly do some final shots too, it might be a really cool use case for it, you know? Ball views virtual production tools and real-time animation technology as unlocking new opportunities for filmmakers. I'm really interested in that space of the streamer content side of things where the threshold for an HD or a 4K screen in your living room is a little bit lower than a 100-foot IMAX screen, you know, for something like Planet of the Apes. You can get away with a little bit more, and so you can really use these tools and push them right to their edge, to their boundary, and then continue to push them past, of course. But you could create something that's completely acceptable for doing really high-end work. That's where we're at now. And Tim Miller, who I kind of consider a friend now, who made um, Love, Death, and Robots. Uh, let's see, we just passed the Ravage Church. There is the blood pit. Uh, ah this way, here we go. He proved that there is an audience for animation that's not just from Disney and Pixar or DreamWorks. He made some cool adult animation. So I think there's gonna be a great opportunity there for people to leverage all this talent that's out there. I mean, it's insane how much talent is out there with the animators and textures and modelers and sculptors and you know, all this stuff. If I weren't busy on Planet of the Apes, 
I would be right now putting together a small five-man crew to just go make some kick-ass animated series right now, easily. So like, for instance, I've got a TV show that it's insane. It's a crazy idea. It would never get made because it'd be too damn expensive. But with these tools, hey, maybe we could make it for half the price of what you normally would. And maybe it's kind of worth taking that risk now because it's so weird and odd that maybe that's something we should be doing. You know, so I think the opportunities that are kind of there for us with these tools, it feels very promising, very exciting for the future. listening to the virtual production podcast thanks again to our special guest Wes Ball for joining us this episode was written and hosted by me Noah Kadner this episode was edited and mixed by Corey Abel the virtual production podcast is a co-production of the virtual company and Abel Cine we love virtual production and would also love to work with you so please visit our websites and drop us a line if we can help you can find us at ablecine.com and thevirtual.co. This podcast also wouldn't be possible without Descript, the most fun you'll ever have editing audio as text. Try it now at descript.com. Please also let us know if there's a subject or a guest you want us to have on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please consider giving us a five-star review, subscribing, and telling all your friends about us. Thanks again and see you next time.